Blog Talk Radio. That's right, Africa is the center of the world. Welcome to another episode of Africa on the Move. Like always, we are honored to be here today and we speak truth to power and to provide you information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. Today's date is March 14, 
2021. Our theme for today is racism and its various forms. That's right. We discuss racism and its various forms. And we would like for you to shine in with us today by calling in at 323-679-0841. Like always, Africa on the move, going to stand the seat, and it's going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand by it. So on that note, you know how we do this. You know how how we do this on this particular program. We first start with our party by first and foremost introducing to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. Follow the introduction. We can talk a little bit about what's going on in your world and community, and you can join in with us on the segment. And then we'll go to that theme for the night, which is again racism and its various forms. So at this point in time, let's get started with our party. We're going to bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness. And, of course, you know Brother Africa. My thing is all about institution buildings. But one of the things when you talk about institution buildings, I think it's important to recognize. There is this tendency among human society. Uh, once, once individuals in that community achieve a certain amount of power, it kind of, it kind of immorality sets in. In other words, they tend to do things to empower themselves at the expense of all others. And so, one of, one of the real ironies is that when we talk about the immorality of power in the U.S., a lot of people believe that that problem doesn't exist in the U.S. Despite the, the deficits between the have and the have-nots, despite the uh, decline in the economy as a result of uh, uh, economic manipulation. We tend to believe that, in fact, that immorality of power doesn't exist in the U.S., but it does. And one thing I want you to, I want you to check this out very, very carefully. Now, the term nation of laws is often cited, but the underlying supposition is never critiqued. Any reasonable analysis would expose the bifurcation of the term. By elevating nation of, nation of laws, there is an implicit thread that validates the will of the powerful interests at the expense of all others. Empowering a small group to manage the affairs of state establishes a precedent where all power resides in their hands. Resides in their hands. One can surmise where absolute power comes diminished responsibility. As architects of society, it makes sense for the rich to advocate, facilitate laws that benefit the powerful. Maintenance of benefits by the powerful could best be maintained by guile and deceit, where the system of law is used to confound, trick the masses into obedience. Never understand the laws they embraced were not designed to empower the masses of people, but to maintain their oppression. Often we are told the nation of laws embodies moral principles that uphold all that is good and holy. Couched in mysticism, we are told American laws are guided by Judeo-Christian principles in keeping with the will of creation. Reconciling this moral platitude is complicated by the fact that church-state separation maintained by the U.S. Constitution stipulates these opposing ideas are never to intersect, each possessing its own sphere of influence. We often lead to big decisions that impact societies profoundly. If the express purpose of capitalism is to amass as much wealth as possible, how much sway would moral reasoning have over the pursuit of money? More reasoning, more than not, is likely to mitigate against the pursuit of money at all costs and likely to be rejected. If materialism is the motivation of human, Wealthy elites, loyalties are more likely to reside with philosophies that encourage greed, avarice, and theft. The moral aspect of human motivation, while desirable, does not appear to be a factor, at least a primary factor, in human behavior. 
Now, numerous events in history tend to underscore the pervasiveness of self-interest at the expense of the common good. Often in this regard, language is expressed specifically to deceive. For example, democracy in the U.S. is defined by the political class as concerned for the common good. The reality is democracy is defined by the preamble of the Constitution is beneficial to the wealthy minority. We're talking about white land owners and those who own assets. Full employment, for example, is presented as jobs provided everyone who wants one. The reality is full employment really means hiring less people to increase profits. My favorite, my favorite though, is equality under the law. While the idea of equality of law sounds good, the reality is quite different. Law, like any commodity, has to be paid for, from attaining legal representation to propagandizing cases to receive favorable juries to investigating the case takes money. We all know too well innocent poor people in prison because they lack finances, and wealthy guilty people free because they had expensive, skilled attorneys. Now, the benefit of wealth are simply too many to overlook, from escaping punishment for violent crimes to police murder of civilians' acquittals. Disparities are easy to see. Corporate crime is even more egregious. In the case of Agent Orange, the toxic chemical used to destroy vegetation and foliage resulted in numerous cancers and birth effects in Vietnam historically and current. And the compensation for this atrocity was only to pay Vietnam $230 million. No one went to prison, not a single person, for this devastation. The Royal Dutch Shell Oil Company polluted the Niger Delta region of Nigeria. 2,976 oil spills over a 15-year period. No one goes to prison. In 2010, Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico, right, right outside the state of Louisiana, oil rigs caught on fire. Pollution the Gulf of Mexico creating irreparable damage. 11 people killed. And keep in mind, this is the second time BP oil, oil rigs exploded and caught on fire. The first time was in 2008. In all fairness to BP, I should point out that their rigs were rented from Transocean uh, Incorporated both times. Now, in terms of this incident, there was, there was no prison time for any executive. Well, there was somewhat of a, let me, let me revise that. One supervisor was given 10-month probation in 2010. Now, we're talking about 60,000 barrels of oil leaked per day for nearly three months. Mass irreparable harm to done to the Gulf of Mexico. Nobody goes to prison. This tragedy is overshadowed by the tele-energy offshore platforms, also in the Gulf of Mexico, where it's, leaked, it's reported leaking between 378 to 4,536 gallons of oil per day, this according to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. It has been leaking since 2004 and currently 2021. Now, this leak potentially could last for 100 years, yet no prison time for any executives whatsoever. I think at this point, you get, I think at this stage, you get the point. Now, let me recruit with the immorality of power by highlighting a case that has received little publicity from mainstream media. The case of Stephen Donzinger is a chilling tale exposing excesses of power, collusion, and a, a duplicitous judicial system. The case centered around Stephen Donzinger, a human rights lawyer, who represented the indigenous people of Ecuador over Texaco and Chevron's intentional destruction, intentional destruction of the Amazon rainforest by pumping hazardous waste and cruel oil into rivers and streams. Donzinger, the lead attorney, demonstrated with documents that the cost-cutting and conscious decision by Chevron and Texaco to pollute both water and soil in the Amazon, despite the indigenous population's reliance on land for fishing, bathing, hunting, and water consumption. 
between 1964 to 1992, Texaco, later acquired by Chevron, dumped additional 30 billion gallons of toxic waste in the Amazon. In 1993, Donzinger and other international lawyers filed suit. Chevron, in its relationship to a corrupt military, stipulated the case must be decided in Ecuador. Donzinger prevailed, and the court fined Chevron $10 billion in 2011, a small fine relative to damage done to the people and land in, in the Amazon. Chevron refused to pay, citing the ruling was illegitimate. They proceeded to close all Chevron's accounts and assets in Ecuador. Chevron did implement a strategy that was unprecedented in U.S. jurisprudence. They filed a civil racketeering suit against the lead attorney, Stephen Donzinger. The complaint alleged Donzinger won the case because of, quote, fraud, bribery, and corruption, end quote, that allegedly he bribed the trial judge. According to 26 international lawyers, Equatorian officials, no such collusion ever existed. The point of Chevron's strategy was to send a message to future human, human rights lawyers who would challenge Chevron's policies. Donzinger would be the perfect sacrificial lamb. Chevron's strategy was consolidated by assigning Judge Lewis Kaplan to hear the charges against Chevron and Donzinger. Judge Kaplan, formerly a tobacco industry lawyer, first moved Willis to dis- disregard all the evidence corroborating Chevron's guilt. Chevron was acquitted and Donzinger was found guilty and disbarred in New York in 2020. When Donzinger appealed the ruling, Judge Kaplan stipulated he turned off all privileged communication between himself and clients. All computers, phones, and other electronic devices were to be turned over to Chevron. The implication of the ruling suggests if there is only any possibility of prevailing on appeal, providing information to Chevron would be in his benefit to do so. Danzinger, nobody's fool, realized providing privileged communications will only provide Chevron with more opportunities to contact plaintiffs, concoct storylines, and, and provide more bribes. This was revealed through earlier documentation. Chevron paid Alphonse Guerrero $2 million to lie in court, stating he observed transfer of funds between Danzinger and the trial lawyer. Danzinger is currently under house arrest in New York City, and he's been there for 16 months. Then prevail on the judge's ruling to provide Chevron on Chevron to provide Chevron with electronic uh, devices. That order has yet to be adjudicated. Donzinger did prevail when Judge Kaplan charged him with six counts of criminal contempt of court for evoking attorney-client privilege for not turning over electronic devices. The federal prosecutor's office ruled Judge Kaplan's charges were outside of the discretion of the judges. In other words, judges hear cases, not charge the plaintiff's attorneys with crimes. Being a vindictive sort, George Kaplan contacted a private law firm, Seward and Kissel, to pursue charges against Donzinger. By the way, Seward and Kissel uh, represents big oil and gas uh, conglomerates. Clearly an abuse of power. So why wasn't George Kaplan charged with corruption? Simply, the whole system is corrupt. And until we fundamentally understand the reality, nothing's going to change in American society. We have to understand that the systems, the institutions that govern the society uh, corrupt from the top to the bottom, and it's question in terms of uh, justice, equality, question of equality, it's question in terms of uh, more humane existence, simply cannot exist unless people the question of corruption that exists in American society. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. 
my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse the correct verdicts, Brother Africa. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Thank you for allowing me to be on this show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, you can listen to Africa on the Move. And uh, today's topic will center around racism and its various forms. Before we get to our topic, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the call. So when we come back, we're going to open up with our first segment for the day as we're going to discuss what's going on in your world and the community. That's right. We'd like to hear from you. Tell us what's going on in your world and the community. And you can do that just by calling in at 3267908401. Hit one. Please hit one if you have any questions or comments. And we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So we're going to pause for this cause and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Tu 
such speech shall properly be regarded as school speech that's potentially subject to discipline by school officials, end quote. Now, this Orwellian nature of this decision to petition the Supreme Court suggests suggest exercising free, free thought represents an existential threat to society. As such, institutions representative of the state should have the power to, to punish such speech wherever it exists. This strategy is problematic in that the chilling effect on free thought uh, potentially could negatively impact education generally. Increasingly, young people are expressing indignation at institutions that retard progress or facilitate divisions between people. Acknowledging police abuse, along with systematic abuse, suggests a newfound awakening among youth that constitute a threat to the status quo. This threat is magnified by the growing push in many parts of the world to implement critical thinking curriculum in education. Critical thinking inclusion attempts to train students in the ability to deconstruct information, to employ logical augmentation, giving students the ability to understand why true premises can lead to false conclusions. For example, uh, for example, reporters report, uh, <clears throat> many people believe reporters always support the truth, or America is a democracy, or people are unemployed because they are lazy. Now, by dispelling these kinds of platitudes, students can better assess the state of affairs, becoming more conscientious citizens, not just of the country, but of the world. If this newfound consciousness, it is this newfound consciousness that terrifies the political elites. Content with the current educational system that facilitates blind obedience, restoration of discarded truths, and class stratification, wounded elites embrace, embrace a pliable population easy to manipulate. In the book, Academically Adrift, published in 2011, the revelation too many college grads in the U.S. cannot think critically were not greeted with the kind of combination that you would think by conservatives. It certainly, it certainly could be surmised. A lukewarm response to U.S. education shortcomings suggests indoctrination is far more desirable than an enlightened electorate resorting from the critical thinking curriculum. The fact the current Democratic administration is pursuing a constitutionally dubious case suggests the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are one and the same, and as such, uh, needs are equipped to stop, to, to, to prevent, or to, 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 to halt the onslaught of uh, fascism and totalitarianism. It is headed as headed this way in America. So clearly, you know, so when we start thinking about these, 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 these philosophical differences between the Republicans and Democrats, obviously this case indicates there's no real difference. And the fact that Democrats so, chose to take this case on speak violence in terms of the kind of fascist mindset that exists in a lot of these politicians who are in positions of power, which means that if we're going to have any type of really uh, uh, justice in society, then one thing we have to do, we have to have organizations, serious organizations, serious institutions on a local and national level, on local and state level, in terms of confronting a lot of these injustices that are coming our way. So clearly, this is very, very problematic. And so for those who don't believe that fascism could ever exist in America, or totalitarianism, excuse me, totalitarianism can never exist in America. I want them to think again about that because clearly this case is indicative of, 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 of those tendencies. So clearly, you know, I'll end with that, Brother Africa. All right, thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we're going to Brother Moses. Tell us what's going on in your world and the community. Come and talk to us, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, this has been an interesting week. You know, the H.R. 1 passed, uh, and the president signed it, and 
I think it's going to make a material difference, uh, at least a short-term range difference in the lives of a lot of people, uh, children, and and uh, uh, there, there being no difference between the Republican and Democrats in theory, but in practice, uh, there is there is a, a a contradiction there between fascism and all-out fascism and. and and attempts at democratic processes, and uh, I say viva the difference. And I, I think we have to organize um, based upon independent of, of Democrats and Republicans, but we we cannot ignore the masses of the people and and the the situation that we are faced here in this country. Um, I think the core, the vaccine COVID COVID nineteen is. That is um, being rolled out, and uh, uh, science science is in command, hopefully. And uh, I think you know the situation is is getting it's getting a little brighter. I think uh, it's just a matter of time before people wake up and see see that um, that that healthcare is possible, and that education is possible, and that you know a community fund for the masses of workers and uh and that this exploited system of slave labor system can be overcome. It's just a matter of time. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And what we're gonna do right now, we're gonna take a quick break, station break, and when we come back, we're gonna continue the discussion on what's going on in your world and community by we're gonna bring in Sister Mormy. Uh there's a very important program we want you to know about and why you should participate. We're going to talk about African Women Emancipation Day, which will take place on Saturday, March 20th, 2021. So we're going to have another discussion about women, women, women depression, but more important about this event, what it means and why are we doing it. We're going to have that perspective from a very conscious young lady, Sister Mommy, and she'll be coming back after the station break. So right now, just sit back and relax and listen to some African music. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. So vast, so great, the African embrace. The color of life. Universal harmony. The earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity. Human being, human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African Embrace. Live beyond. Love beyond. Your skin to where you belong.
That's on the 20th, this upcoming Saturday, and you must be there. So right now, we'd like to bring in uh, Sister Mormy. We'd like to welcome her to Africa on the Move. And Sister Mormy, welcome to Africa on the Move. And um, in terms of who you are, just give us a brief background. You have done many things. Who is Sister Mormy? Well, Sister Moore and me, we're supposed to call in today and just share with the listening audience a little bit about African Women's Emancipation Day. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, we can, loud and clear. Okay. Yes, we and, um, and And Lee has basically given you the, the, the basic information about what it is, when it is, and how to access it. Now, let me say this. From time immemorial, all the way back home in Africa, African women have been have been a critical part, a critical part of our struggle, of our struggle for liberation, unification, liberation, for freedom, freedom, for emancipation. For emancipation. Um, um, from the from the from, from the, the time from back the time in Africa back when we were Africa, queens, queens, when we were also when workers, we, were also we workers, worked, workers, we worked hard, we struggled with our with with our our community to try to uplift ourselves as African people from the from the trans and Atlantic slave trade where they dispersed our men, our women, and our children all throughout the African world to today. African women have been a critical part. Of our struggle for liberation and unification. I, I dare say that when we talk about African men and African women, we have worked with our brothers and our children. We have worked. We have found ourselves sometimes behind our brothers, pushing them forward. We have been beside our brothers on the side, moving towards more and more liberation. And many times we've been in the front of our brothers. We've been wherever we needed to be. We have advanced the struggle. And this coming weekend, Saturday, to be, sure. Saturday, to be sure, Saturday, March 2, Saturday, March 2 you're going to hear about, you're going to hear about the, struggle the struggle for emancipation of women in other parts of the world and in other parts of the African world so we can have a better understanding of what the mandate is in front of us, what our charge is from those who have struggled, sacrificed, and died before us. Now, this thing is taking place on Saturday, March 20. We have our sister, Layla Brown Vincent, who will be moderating the first segment. We're going to Looking at, um, looking at um, welcome and land acknowledgement. We know that this is the home of the, this is, where we're living right now. This, this place is taken from the Native Americans, from the American American Indians, we call them the Native Americans. And we're going to have a representative of that organization that has been very close to our organization, which is the All African People's Revolutionary Party, for years. And they're going to come and like make that hookup so we can better understand how other women are moving and how at the same time they move in support of each other in support of other struggles. The first panel is going to be is going to be the emancipation of women is a precondition for the emancipation of men. And that's the theme of it from 12 to 1 o'clock. And we have speakers from um, Davidson College from the Pan-African Congress of Azania, South Africa, from the Haitian Lawyers Leadership Network, and then also we have a sister from Palestine. This is in the first panel from 12 to 1 o'clock. And our moderator is the sister Akua Hope. And she'll like, make sure you understand the connection of those organizations to our struggle as a people. Then you'll be entertained with some cultural art 
artistic expression from 1 to 1.30 p.m. We're very, very privileged to have Sister Janine Bell and the Allegra Folklore Society. In addition, we have Doc Kyle with the Malcolm X drummers and dancers. They're going to like provide a, to show how the culture has to pick up to our struggle as a people. And so you're going to enjoy that great deal. Finally, in the last couple of parts, we're going to have you're going to have women. Hold on, let me advance this down a little bit. You're going to have women struggling for socialism, social justice, and revolution. Now, here we're going to bring in our sisters. Let me pull this down. Give me one minute. Here we go. We're going to have our sisters from around the world who will also not only share the struggle they've been a part of, but how their struggle connects. To our struggle. Uh, and on that particular panel that I will be moderating, um, we have, uh, again, Sister Lady Brown. She's representing the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, D.C., and the AAWRU, which is a female or the women's wing of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. We'll also have a, a sister from the Bolivian Republic of uh, Venezuela. There's a lot of questions, a lot of confusion around that struggle down in Venezuela. She'll be able to impart some more information on it. We have Charlene uh, Burden. Um, she's with the Black Africans for Peace and University. Uh, she's from actually the University of Chicago. And then we have two more uh, dynamic people. We have sister. Gretel Marante, the Federation of Cuban Women. Cuban women. We have a strong, integral, and dialectical connection with the struggle of our people in Cuba. And finally, we're going to have a. We started with the brothers and sisters who actually this land belongs to. We're going to end up with those brothers and sisters. Same people. We have Penny Gamble Williams of the Indigenous People Movement. And these and women these will come women forward and just share a little bit about the struggle that they're going through. You get a chance to answer questions. You get a chance to challenge it. You get a chance to learn more and to grow more. We know that at the end of the day, we need to continue to have opportunities for we as a, as a people. And sometimes it's led by the system. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's led by all of our people. will come together and look at our struggles historically and look at what we can and could and should do together to, like, take it to the next Take level, to, the next to up level. the ante, to, up to the make answer, sure that make we have the kind of situation that allows us to, 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 to arrive at socialism, okay, social justice, revolution, and emancipation, all of those words are kind of like interchange, but they're going to be dealt with in different facets at this awesome meeting that will be taking place on Saturday, so go ahead and get your little... A little juice and some water, some water. Some snacks. So this is going to be very, 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 very insightful, insightful, helpful, 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 and hopefully you want to find out something more about the organization that's sponsoring it. So again, I welcome everybody to come. Uh, he had asked me to say something about myself. I, I've been a member of, uh, I have been a member and worked with this uh, particular organization since 1970, 1970, and um. 
and as a member of the Central Committee, the Central Committee at one point in time of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. And I've had the fortune to like meet, greet, and work with African women, non African women, all of them militant, all of them revolutionary, many of them socialists throughout the world during my time working with the organization. And I'm here to say that it's something that you would like to find out more about and see how you plug into it and how you can like become a part of that ongoing struggle to. To, um, to arrive at emancipation, for all of our people, uh, in, in, in particular, and for every, and for, for people in the world, we, we, we work ourselves, we connect ourselves to the world movement for social justice, for emancipation. So make sure you, you know, check that out. Um, as Lee said, there is a flyer online that you can access to to get that link. So okay. I thank you guys for being on here this evening. And thank you for inviting me, um, Brother Lee, to like share a little bit more of this information. Look, I'm excited. I'm fired up. Because I know these women are going to be off the hook. And they were like bringing some really interesting information uh, that will lift all of us up, inspire us to continue, to keep on keeping on. All right? So, Samoami. Looking at the theme mm-hmm. of this particular mm-hmm. program, looking at the theme of this particular program, I see you're going to make a lot of people mad because you saying women, African women need to be emancipated. Most people believe since the post-election of the Barack Obama administration, African people have been freed. How do you respond to that, 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 that assessment or that, that, that perception of reality? Well, one thing well, for sure, we did see women. We did see women in those two uh, movements and those two uh, sets of activities stepping up to the forefront, what they've always been doing, and asserting themselves as they've always attempted to do. And they they helped like make some uh, serious changes. The whole Black Lives Matter movement, and with sisters, okay, them was African women who were at the forefront of that. Um, but yet, who we know the struggle continues. We are not free. We have a long way to go. Go. We're just go. planting some We're seeds, planting some and we hope you guys can join with us to help nurture, develop, develop, so that we can like harvest can, like, those harvest seeds that will help us to improve the lives of our people of our here people. in the United here States, throughout the African world, in Europe, certainly in Africa, in South America. Okay, we have we have we have African women, and we have just people who are struggling all over the world. That struggle. Is alive and well, and of course this uh, program will help us take that picture and help you guys to better understand how yeah it's alive and well. We've made some strides. Most of them are what we call quantitative changes. We're we're doing a little bit better, a little bit better, but we haven't made that qualitative change because at the end of the day we're talking about revolution. Okay. You know, Sister Mommy, in terms of looking at women emancipation as a whole as a gender. Are there anything exists within women history and African women history particular that will limit women to any possibilities that uh, the man has done? For example, some people believe because you're a woman, there are certain jobs you shouldn't have access to because of the fact you're a woman and you wouldn't be able to do a good job. How do you deal with that kind of backward way of thinking? Okay, I'm kind of glad you asked that question because maybe I didn't do a good enough job of pointing out that women 
are victims of three kinds of oppression. Okay, we're oppressed because number one, uh, because of uh, our position with respect to the labor in society, we respect uh, as African as, as an African person, and we're, we're oppressed as women. We have a triple oppression that we are facing, and that our women face. And even though we're facing it, it's confronting us. It's limiting us in terms of even being able to be revolutionary. Um, um, we we know, we, and, we know, and many and many and more many, of our men know, are uh, coming to know that, yeah, yeah, we got to get behind the sisters, we got to get behind the women, we got to get behind, behind any and every, every segment of our, of our society that seeks to be a part of this struggle to change things. So, um, no, no, we, we're not free. The oppression of women continues in so many realms. Sometimes it's explicit, sometimes it's implicit, sometimes it's covert, covert. Sometimes it's over that you can see. And it's our, it's, and sometimes it's, it's, it's we're part of it, even women themselves. Sometimes women themselves uh, become a part of this ongoing oppression of African women, but we're coming to see the light. We're coming to better understand what it is, what it looks like, how we can help to undo it, how we can help to uh, move us to the next level. Uh, and certainly, like, make sure we're uh, enlightening our brothers and our, our entire society to understand what it looks like and how we can overcome it. They say when you free the women, you free a nation. Okay, when you liberate the women, you actually can liberate the nation because at the end of the day, we play a critical role in terms of moving society forward, preparing our babies, our children, you know, to like make their contribution to the struggle and also uplifting and also struggling with our brothers. So. So that struggle it that continues. Struggle, it I don't know. I had to do a whole uh, interview, brother. <laughs> and closing out again, just state to our listening audience again why they should support this upcoming event, African Women Emancipation Day. Yeah, I, I yeah, look forward to seeing you guys there. I'm going to MC moderation. I say the third panel, but the whole thing will be powerful. All right, to my listening audience, that was Sister Mormon. She just invited you to come and check out African Women Emancipation Day, which is being held on Saturday, March the 20th, 2021, from 12 to 3. Uh, for more information, please go to this website, www.a-aprp.gc.org. Check it out this Saturday, and we would like to show our support for women. And the best way we can do that is to participate side-by-side side with our sisters and women in general. So what we're going to do right now, we'll take yes. a quick break and we'll come. Yes, Sister Mom. Yes, Sister Mom. Hold on, say? hold on, hold on. We want to thank uh, Brother Lee and the work that he has been doing, is doing now, in the you know, in, in terms of this struggle, in terms of our struggle in general, the people. We want to thank him for that hard work. Uh, no need to thank me. I have responsibility to give back to our people because they have done so much. Not only for us, but also for humanity. But we thank you, sister, for taking a few minutes to share some time with our listening audience about coming and supporting this weekend, African Women Emancipation Day. And it has a dynamite, dynamite content. I see all the progressive and revolutionary organizations. You, you don't get this kind of program anywhere. So we'll be looking forward to having a spend the day with the APRPGC and the rest of its friends supporters. This Saturday, African Women Emancipation Day. So right there, we're going to pause with the calls. So when we come back, we'll continue the discussion on what's going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the Move. Mm-hmm. 
water and chains, living in pain. Today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yes, last through my journey. To get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been. And made it through my journey, yeah. And made it through my journey, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Pellerino. A bloodline across the waters. From Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino is the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, 
and all the Pelovinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. My journey, yeah, 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 yeah,
So clearly that's, that, that kind of thinking is void of humanity. And so this kind of antiquated thinking in terms of seeing people uh, uh, based upon gender is something that we have to reject. Uh, people's uh, qualities, uh, people, what they bring to the table doesn't, is not defined by their gender. So we have to discard this notion that, in fact, that certain things or certain avenues or certain jobs uh, or certain classifications are for men but not for women. So we have to reject that. Un- you know, we just have to reject that. So I think that, you know, as a conscious African man, you know, I have an obligation, I have a responsibility to make sure whenever I see that kind of sexism manifest itself to, to, to speak to brothers in terms of why that kind of, why that kind of uh, sexism, why that kind of mindset is kind of productive and why it does more harm than good. And in fact, it does no good at all. It's simply all the, all the harm, all, all, excuse me, it does a tremendous amount of harm. So clearly we have a responsibility in terms of making sure that uh, we do those things that are going to uplift our system simply because, you know, systems are intimate peace in terms of making sure, you know, we, we create a, a just and loving society because without the women, achieving a just and loving society almost becomes impossible. Brother Moses, your take on African women oppression and women in general. All right, with me, Brother Moses. I guess without Brother Moses, what we'll do, we'll come back. But again, you know, we want you to remember, set aside the day for African Women Emancipation Day on Saturday, March 20, 2021. It's been sponsored by the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Please check out the website for more information. It's www.a-aprp.gc.org. Check out and participate. As we continue to talk about what's going on in our community, Brother Hacker, you said something earlier, and I wanted to maybe see you get you to extrapolate a little bit more on this, this relationship between this question of economic wealth and government environment. How does the government really prepare facilitate this whole question of economic wealth as relates to a few get to uh, enjoy the benefit of these resources while the majority of us um, don't. How does the government play a role in terms of that facilitation? Talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Brother Africa, the transfer of wealth is facilitated in a tremendous amount of ways. Uh, It's facilitated in terms of interest. Interest payment is just facilitated in terms of monetary policy, in terms of the amount of money in circulation. It's facilitated a tremendous amount of ways. The easiest way to explain it, I think, in which a way in which people can really understand it is recently, you know, we're not recently, with the last five, six years, they've been engaging in qualitative easing. There's another way of saying what, they, what the uh, Federal Reserve essentially is doing is that they're expanding the money supply. And so expanding the money supply, they in turn determine who have access to, the, to that money. Normally, when we think in terms of economics, we think that if you give everybody, you know, wealth, if you give, not wealth, but if you give everybody money, then that money will be, then therefore be spent, which goes into the system, which vitalizes the system, which causes the system to expand, and so you have a vibrant economy. Well, what's happening is that with this quantitative easing, the money that's created doesn't benefit the mass of the people. It goes to a select number of people, and particularly goes to the corporations and the capitalists. And so they, in turn, use it not in terms of the expansion of the economy to make the economy grow. They use it to enrich themselves. In fact, when the first thing they do in terms of this wealth is that uh, they buy back their own stocks. And so what happens is in buying back your own stocks, you boost the price of your stock, and so you can buy it back, 
you know, receive a higher dividend. And so this is typically being going on. And what they do with those higher dividends, all that money they make from the, from buying back their own stock, that money ends up going into accounts offshore in which it's not taxed. So which means that the, 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 the country at large doesn't have access uh, to, to, those, to those revenues, which means that things like employment, uh, things like a social safety net, things like um, education, all those things that people need in terms of vibrant and helpless economy uh, don't have access to. So clearly, all this is a so, so all this is a function. This is a function in terms of essentially what you're saying is that the system is rigged for the benefit of the wealthy at the expense of everybody else. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, <laughs> the media don't spend a lot of time talking about that, so people don't really understand that. Uh, you know, recently, you know, we, we talk about in terms of this. this um, they're talking about uh, they, 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 all this all this money uh, for uh, for COVID-19. But the sole purpose in terms of ensuring that the economy uh, gets what it needs in terms of being able to be, maintain its viability. Well, unfortunately, a lot of that money that was earmarked specifically for, for small business ended up in the coffers of giant corporations. So if the money would have given to the small businesses, which, by the way, employ 80% of the people in society, if the money would have actually went to the small businesses, then the small business would have been able to, to maintain employment May, uh, 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 maintain their production and make sure you know the system uh, continues to move right along, but that didn't happen. Essentially, what they did, they changed rules of the game. When it, on, the, on the surface, in terms of what they said, they said it was going to give us these these programs earmarked toward small business, so small and medium sized businesses. But when it comes to actual payments, the large payments actually went to giant corporations who really didn't. A lot of them didn't even need the money. They wanted it simply because it, it, it was there, and and also they understood that by having access to their money, they could also buy back, buy back their share of stocks and, and increase their, their profits. So clearly, you know, uh, so when we talk about in terms of, you know, this, this, this arrangement in terms of the system, in terms of how it actually operates, we have to understand this is, this is, this is the Ponzi scheme from the top to the bottom. And this is why when we talk about a declining system, that we've got to be very clear on why it's declining. Also, one of the things, Brother Africa, we've we got to understand, you know, you see, one of the things, is that you know? Also, they talk about investments. The investments are, are very, very, are very, very key. But if you if you create a system which 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 was fundamentally uh, in decline based upon you know its lack of resources, then what it means is that people who have money to invest would never invest in a country which is in decline. America's in decline. So why would you invest in a country that's in decline? So those people, same people who have access to all that money that's being created by qualitative easement, then take that money to invest in countries abroad, in particular the, the Far East. So even though on the media they keep talking about you know, China's an enemy, uh, South Korea's an enemy, we're well, not right, but China's an enemy, uh, Russia's an enemy, uh, you know, the, you know these all these enemies that, that, that proliferate. Well, you know, when you stop and look at it, they, 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 the fact is. Why, if there's such an enemy, then why are you investing in these in these in these entities? Why are you investing in these com- countries? Because the bottom line we have to understand, in the context of the capitalist mindset, it's never about never about country. It's all about profit profitability. It's about making money. And so if they can make money by in terms of investing in economies abroad, that's what they do. They'll tell you how much they care about America, but when it comes to investments, it's clear they can tell less about America because America doesn't offer any real returns. So even when you talk about, uh, you know, when we talk about bonds, you know what I mean? That's a big thing now over terms of bonds, right? So the so the uh, so the, um, the the Treasury is selling all these bonds to the to the um, to the Federal Reserve. The Treasury is selling all these bonds to the Federal Reserve, right? 
Well, there's a big problem in terms of if, if, if interest rates are too low, what happens is that people, the wealthy in particular, which, which, by the way, um, 10% of all investment societies are the wealthy. So 90% of the people in the country don't invest in bonds. They simply don't have any, have any money for that. But in any event, so when you talk about, so when you talk about the, the, the interest rates on bonds rising, it means that essentially that those stocks, that those, 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 those uh, instruments that corporations depend on to raise funds, uh, which means that when they compete against bonds, if you have high rates in terms, in terms of bonds, then people are not going to purchase stocks, which means that you effectively cripple corporations, which means they don't have no way to raise money other than through the bond market or through, or through, through, through Fed, uh, Fed quantitative easing. So it's a crazy system, but then again, it's all geared toward making sure that, that, the, that, the, that, the, that the small number of people have access to wealth. I mean, I mean, Vast wealth uh, at the expense of the system, at the expense of the people, at the expense of what is right. So clearly, uh, we got to understand that. We, so when we talk about this um, this system in terms of how you know uh, how money is created and how money is 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 is, 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 is given out. Then we got to understand that fundamentally, there's a real disconnect in terms of uh, those monies that that are created and the people actually receive those monies. Until you create a situation where you can make sure that the masses of people we see access to the money. There's no way to to revitalize the economy. There's no way for the economy to expand. It contracts. It continues to fall. And when, so when you talk about bonds in terms of high interest rates for bonds and more and more people buying these these bonds, what it means the government become more and more and more in debt because they got to pay back those bonds. So if you got a five year, ten year, fifteen year bond, you know, at say two percent interest, that's a lot of money in a five, ten, fifteen years. That's a lot of money the government has to pay back. It's a problem. The government doesn't have the money to pay back simply because there are no revenues coming in. Remember, the unemployment is growing leaps and bounds. Here recently, we talked about 50 million people recently joined the unemployment. In addition to, to the already uh, uh, tens of millions of people who are already unemployed, so now we have an additional 50 million unemployed. So it means that fundamentally there's, there are no revenues coming to the government. Those people are unemployed. Uh, if anything, they're dependent on the government for some type, of, some type of assistance in terms of just being able to put food on the table or take care of their families or even pay their rent. So clearly, you know, this, so the government is geared toward in, enriching the few at the expense of the many. It's important that people in the society understand that this kind of situation is untenable. I mean, it simply can't be sustained. And, and if we don't understand, and my, my biggest fear is that because people don't understand that, they tend to blame each other. So when we look at the terms of unemployment, and people say, well, well people are unemployed because they don't want to work, because they're lazy. And you try to explain to people, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. People are unemployed simply because it's more... It's more, it's more profitable for them to be unemployed. That's why they're unemployed. And people don't get it. They just they, they can't get it because they don't understand the terms of, you know, for instance, how qualitative easing works. They don't understand the terms of the functional interest rates. They don't, they don't understand the interest rate is simply to transfer wealth from the poorest people to the richest people. They don't understand that because they've been taught something else. Uh, they don't know that, you know, you know, so even something as simple as inflation, you know, and people don't understand that inflation is an invisible tax. So why? So the reason why inflation is such a such a such an issue is because with inflation becomes the, the increase in prices, all things, commodities. So we talk about in, in the U.S. alone over the last two years, the price of food alone over the last two years has increased three billion dollars. Now you got to you got to ask yourself: if inflation is increasing exponentially, then in your, at the same time you don't have jobs, your salaries are actually falling. Then how are you able to sustain yourself? How can you buy food? How can you pay the rent? 
um, how can you do any of this stuff when the inflation, when the cost of living itself continues to go up, 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 and up? But meanwhile, the people at the top, the one, the one tenth, certainly the one tenth, one percent of the population, are making all the wealth and they're no problem whatsoever. So everything is fine, but everybody else, you're on your own. So such a system, such a setup could never be sustainable. And this is what we have to say. I'm just hoping that people would not blame themselves in terms of these, these kind of shortcomings that they're confronted with. And so this thing is just beginning. So when we talk about the 15 million additional unemployed, this is just beginning, Brother Africa. It hasn't even really kicked in yet. In another, another year, it's really, going, it's really going, to, going to take hold. So clearly, you know, this, 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 you know, this kind of game that they play in terms of using the economic system as a personal piggy bank for the wealthy is going to lead to destruction of the society. So people got to understand that. And I'm hoping that people do not blame themselves and begin to understand the economics of all of this and why you have you know, such dire poverty in the first place. Okay, this point in time, we're going to take in a caller. We'll bring caller. Your last four numbers are 6050. Caller 6050. Welcome to Africa on the Moves. Your question or comment, please. Greetings, gentlemen. Greetings, gentlemen. Um, Greetings. Um, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to say that one of the great things about the Internet um, is that information, more information is readily available than ever before. For some reason, I'm getting an echo. I don't know why, but um, so, so. If you're trying to work through that, if you're having problems trying to correct that, it's, 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 it's beyond that control, so just change okay, okay. to work towards no problem. it. No problem. Uh-huh. Right. Go ahead. Right. So, 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 so people do understand more of what's going on. Young people, high schoolers are talking about inflation and what it is. They're talking about it online. They're talking about it um, in school now. They're talking about it. I mean, that young people are more people understand now than I think have ever understood before the financial system that they that they live under. Right, so that's a great thing about the internet. Um, I think they do have a better understanding of what's going on now. Um, you know, even as it relates to what happened with uh, with uh, the company GameStop and their stock and Wall Street bets, which I was part of that Reddit group, by the way. But with uh, you know, Wall Street bets and stuff. What these young, what these people understand, will probably surprise a lot of people. You know, the technical and fundamental analysis they're able to do on stocks and the market is really, really advanced. Um, Chamath, who is a billionaire investor, um, when this whole thing was going on with GameStop, he came on and said, you know, before everybody criticizes GameStop and what, what Wall Street Bets is doing, he said, you have to go to the Reddit site. He said, these guys understand at a deep level technical analysis of the market. Um, so I, I think that's I, – I, I, I would say that we're – as far as understanding, more people understand more about what's going on now than I think – I can't say it ever before, but in, a, in, in my lifetime, I would say. So, um, and and I, I would venture to say before, before I was born. So, just wanted to put that out there. All right, Carlos, thank you for your comments. Um, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick station break. And when we come back, we're going to go into our theme tonight, 
which is racism in its various forms. That's right, racism in its various forms. In order to fight the fight, you must understand you must understand that in which you are fighting. So we can talk about the format of how various forms of racism is. Be right back. This is Africa on the move. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed we need a new beginning let us plant the seed plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine needs her freedom Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, Let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that have 
that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Lumumba was democracy. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that's mm-hmm. his music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America can stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame when they drop the bombs out of them planes using depleted uranium? Babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck if he's cunning, articulate, and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man. Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face. He said, fuck it, I'll do it. A master of the skies, expert at telling lies. Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize. Should have known he was trained in Chicago. Worked the Chairman Fred and Mark Clark. What they do in the dark will come out in the light. Like a WikiLeaks site. So I guess the crew was right. Who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism, I ain't kidding. In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, this ain't living. Somewhere. 
Sasha and Malia are huge fans. But uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. You will never see it coming. You think I'm joking? We'd like to walk you back to Africa on the Move. We're now entertaining our theme tonight, racism in its various forms. You know, we often say in order to fight the fight, you must know what is the fight. You must understand your enemy. You must understand that your enemy comes in various forms. And at this point in time, during this particular historical moment, we can see racism manifesting its head in many, many forms, and it behooves us to come to understand these forms so we be better equipped to address them. What we want to do right now, uh, we're going to talk about some of the forms of racism um, taking place in social media, and we'd like to have a dialogue on this issue of racism as various forms. What I'm going to do right now to my political panelists, my listening audience, we encourage you to call in at 323-679-0841. Give your views and perspectives on this theme, racism and its various forms. The first thing, uh, panelists and listening audience, we'd like to um, get your response to this issue recently in um, social media. There is a case of a professor who was terminated from Georgetown University for reprehensible comments about the evaluation of her so-called African students or black students. She was sharing her uh, evaluation of certain black students on, on on social media to another professor, and it was very interesting in terms of how she was describing them and um, labeling them as being uh, inferior and capable of really, I guess in so many words, being now and competing with other law students. At the same time, in the same particular piece, which was aired on Roland Martin uh, podcast, which I thought was really interesting, was that um, one of the ways how racism can uh, impact a, a, a people or individual is based upon their own personal experiences. For example, you had this, this professor who was reading papers. Now, how she interpret and evaluate the paper was directly related to her perception of who was the student or what was the student ethnicity was who were writing the paper. One, they, they were going by names. Two, they also were going by their personal experiences in terms of ideals. For example, they noted that there are some social issues that are more likely to be spoken about and addressed as relates to uh, people of African descent or African students versus European students. And with their association, it had a direct impact on how they view that paper, how they view that student. So, Brother Hockey, I actually lead off when you saw that particular um, clipping. What came to your mind in terms of, again, how do you fight this kind of racism, Brother Hockey? Well, Brother Africa, it's a very, it's a very complex very question complex that you ask. Uh, because, because, uh, um, one of the things, of you know, things, uh, racism you know, uh, is racism very pernicious. Is very you got to feedback, brother Africa. Racism is very, racism is very pernicious. And so, one of the things, you know, because it's pernicious, one thing you can understand: um, a lot of times, people who are practitioners of racism are not even don't even know they're racist. Uh, because one of the things, if you're um, 
I mean, if you're immersed in the in in a society which everything around you speaks racism, it's pretty hard as a human being not to absorb uh, those ideas or those philosophies that uh, that inculcate racism. So clearly, you got these professors, you know. So they 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 get a paper, and based upon the the context, or based upon what the student is saying, they 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 at least they think they can decipher whether the person is an African descent or or, or otherwise. And this notion, in fact, that uh, when 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 they read these papers and someone talk about the importance in terms of social justice as relates to legal statutes, or uh, then they must be a person of African descent. As though, as though white people can't uh, articulate, um, you know, um, concern in terms of the human condition as it relates to, uh, to these, these legal statutes. So clearly, you know, this is something that's, uh, something that's ingrained. And I, I, the question how you fight that, I, the bottom line is, Brother Africa, I don't think you can. Uh, this is why I think you, you waste a lot of time trying to convince people, you know, uh, you know the, the, the fallacy in terms of racism. Because no matter what you say, if it's, if it's hardcore conditioning, then whatever, whatever you have to say is not likely to impact um, the way uh, the way such a person thinks. And so it seems to me it's much more incumbent upon African people who understand the racial, the racial reality to create those kind of things which empowers empowers ourselves. You know, so we do what we have to do despite the racism, because if we spend the time trying to appease people in terms of you know to 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 discard racism to get rid of it. Uh, I think it's a losing battle because I think a lot of stuff is just too inculcated uh, in, in, in the hearts and minds of, of people. And it's a very difficult thing. I think certainly class sort of um, additionally, you know, sort of uh, creates, you know, this hardening in terms of, you know, this uh, this, this this identification with racism. Uh, but across the board, whether you talk about poor, middle income, or, or extremely wealthy, the, the, the threats of racism are very much embedded in, this, in American society. So, therefore, I think we, we waste a lot of time Trying to appeal to people in terms of you know the shortcomings in terms of racism, I think it's, it's I think it's just a waste of time. I think it's more important to create institutions, those organizations, the community to really empower yourself and despite the racism to do what you have to do in terms of moving forward. So to answer your question, Brother Africa, I, I personally I just don't see any validity in terms of trying to dissuade people, you know, of their racist thoughts and racist beliefs. I and mean, then you talk about law school professors, and you talk about these some people who are supposed to reverse in the law. And so if nothing at all, they should understand that clearly when we talk about, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution, then clearly, you know, that's embedded, that that document embeds a lot of history. And particularly when you talk about the history in terms of the, the treatment of African people in society, which is justified by that same document, then clearly you understand that there's a real incentive in society to continue the oppression of African people. And as such, then you've got to understand that from, from a social psychological point of view, then it's the this long history in terms of some bitter racism impact on the African community is going to some point resonate. And so you shouldn't be surprised when it resonates. Uh, so the question is whether or not those lawyers are, 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 are have a desire to change that. Well, it seems to me it wouldn't be in their interest to, to change that. So therefore, even though they may understand it from a theoretical point of view, the bottom line is that it's not their interest to change it. So it seems to me that African people have to get their thing together, and uh, and, and I agree, it starts with Africa. I think once Africa is unified and socialized and you, and you have the kind of uh, institutions in place, I think it's going to have a, 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 a holistic impact on Africans throughout the diaspora. But I think it's all kind of things that have to happen. I don't think appealing to racism is a solution. So a lot of people who speak to uh, take the moral high ground and appeal to racism and say, you know, 
back just explaining to you the phallic nature of racism, that once you come to realize, once you come to realize that how fallacious racism is, then you will reject it. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. I mean, there are those people who clearly understand the horrors of racism, you know, who try the best they can to fight against racism, but by large, you have a system in place which sort of reinforce racism. So the bottom line is that it takes African people to do what they have to do in terms of, you know, you know, deal with those systems, but to deal them with in such a way so as to empower your people to do what you got to do in terms of your own longevity. I don't think emotional appeals to racism, uh, racism is, is, to me, is logical. We can see when we talk about this issue of racism and systemic, if you have university professors with that kind of attitude and display that kind of attitude, they definitely can have an impact on their students in terms of not only what type of grades he get, but also ultimately, once he graduates, what kind of employment he getting, he would get, and what would his value be worth in terms of his ability to make money. So your response to that phenomenon, Brother Anthony? Yes. Uh, I agree with uh, I agree all the with points all that Brother Haki made. made. I would add that one of that racism is a is a part of the cultural fabric of the U.S. and it became and 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 remains that way because uh, you have uh, a, a, a European racist bourgeoisie that is in control of the media and educational system. And uh, and th- these are where these ideas perpetuate themselves and are nourished. And uh, and people have to keep in mind that the purpose of college is to produce that ele- that intelligentsia that's going to maintain uh, and uh, you know the values of. Uh, of society in which it finds itself. And that is why it is so hard uh, to make moral appeals to people's consciousness to eliminate racism. The way you uh, uh, eliminate racism is uh, is by asserting your own humanity and forming organizations that will lip, uh, that will ultimately liberate Africa and pave the way for the elimination of racism. But as long as uh, capitalism exists, uh, racism cannot be eliminated uh, because racism and capitalism go hand in hand, just as uh, other forms of exploitation. And uh, so uh, the solution to the problem of racism is for Africans to organize to liberate ourselves. Uh, We have to take the initiative. Other people will not do it for us. They may help us, but the initiative has to come from the masses of African people. Brother Moses, your response to you in a situation, you're observing a situation where you have two papers, identical written brief, two papers, 
they both had the same name, but some kind of way you identified one of the papers as being the African student and another paper being the European student. Now, you had two papers identical, but yet when you grade the paper, you seem to see there are more mistakes on one paper than the other paper. How do you explain that phenomenon? What's going on with that picture? What's wrong with that picture? Well, I wait for Brother Moses, the other panelists, Brother Hockey, Anthony. Um, when we, when he did with that phenomenon, you had two identical papers. You know, you had the same name, student with the same name, but he realized one was African and one was European. But some reason or other, two identical papers, yet they saw different errors, more errors. On uh, I think what what is happening is the fact that, uh, that uh, in any educational any system, educational there's a system, cultural, there's cultural bias. bias. And uh, the and uh, the the educational system is biased to favor Europeans. And uh, and that bias is built in. It's part of the uh, cultural uh, the 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 ideology of uh, capitalism, if you will. And that uh, and and uh, ideology is pervasive. Uh, because, uh, as Nkrumah teaches us, because it covers um, every every facet of a human being's life, uh, including uh, his relationship to nature, relationship with other human beings, and even how uh, how uh, 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 you know things are evaluated and judged. And judged. So it's a very, so it's, it's a, a very, very, it's a very, uh, very uh, difficult very system difficult to fight against. To fight against. Yeah. Hockey, yeah. Yeah. How can it be possible? Yeah. Yeah. You have the same paper, yeah. everything's identical, but yet because they distinguish between the two papers, which one is African, which one is European, they saw different arrows on one when they didn't see another one. What is taking place yeah. when you're in a situation like that? What's going on? Yeah, well, that's that's the unconscious bias. In other words, that's an assumption, you know, that when you look at certain words, certain phraseology, that's affiliated with you know, certain ethnic groups. And so, therefore, when they see that, that kind of unconscious bias rises to the surface. But here, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. That same phraseology, the same uses of words for that white student is not perceived the same as that same phraseology and words by the African student. And so, other words. Uh, so those words on the sheet have unique connotations when it comes to African people, but not any connotations when it comes to white students. So it speaks to the unconscious bias, and so therefore, you know, you know, how do you how do you weed, weed, weed that out? I mean, one of the things if you're inculcated to believe, you can conditioned to believe that you are better than someone else based upon skin color. Uh, anything that uh, sort of um, substantiate their beliefs becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you believe that African students simply shouldn't be here or shouldn't be a lawyer or training for law simply because they don't have the attitude and it's based upon what? The fact that the phraseology and the sentences they use are not traditionally used by European people. So it does have unique connotations. And so the mere fact that you can take the same two identical papers and come to two different conclusions in terms of the author of those papers speaks to the unconscious bias. I think the whole point of that, that, that test 
uh, that that study was to assess the unconscious the the the, um, the the unconscious bias that exists, you know, in you know, in among human beings. And you know, one of the things, brother Africa, I think that um, you know, and I, I agree with the brother. I think one of the things, one of the big errors was you shouldn't have fired you shouldn't have fired that lawyer law professor. You should have brought no, you should have kept her there. You shouldn't have fired that at all. I agree. What you should have done is bring her in in front of all other law professors, you know, set her down and say, okay, now we've got to discuss something of a very, very serious nature. You said this on social media. Now, you got an opportunity to defend yourself because we want to learn. We want to understand more about, you know, your, your thinking, you know, uh, how will you, how, uh, you know, uh, how did you arrive at such decisions. It would have compelled her to deal with her racism. Because keep in mind, because racism is part of a system, uh, you know, getting rid of a couple of uh, lawyers, I mean, uh, 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 teachers, professors of law, is not going to eradicate racism at Georgetown University. So this was a teaching moment in which they should have kept her and said, okay, now we want you to defend your racism. Of course, the bottom line is indefensible, and the other lawyers would have pointed that out and would have would compel her to look, to look at her own racism. It, it may not mean that it she's going to change. change. I, I'm not saying that at all. I'm that at all. But I'm saying at least on a conscious level, at least she's more sensitive to the fact, you know, this bias exists. And she can no longer hide behind this illusion that she, 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 she doesn't speak color. So clearly, Brother Africa, you know, I think the implication is that, you know, uh, people see what they want to see. And when it's colored by race, uh, which is a, which is an artificial construct in the first place, but if, when it's colored by race, uh, I'm not surprised, you know, that they look at the same paper and different lawyers come with different conclusions in terms of who the authors were. Okay, what I can do, I can go to my caller to be on waiting for a while. He may have something he wants to show on the subject. Caller 6050, you've been listening to this particular discussion. Are there any thoughts you'd like to weigh in on? Caller 6050, the mic is yours. Caller 6050, any question or comment? Okay, I thank the callers listening. So what we're going to do, we're going to continue the discussion. What we're going to do right now is to, let's talk about another form of racism that's been playing out in social media. And this particular racism is dealing with dealing with Sharon Osborne getting a heated debate while defending Piers Morgan about Megan Marble and she was talking about her experiences of being part of the so called royal royal family. Now she was defending his position which she believed that whatever she was saying was not true. And she don't believe he don't believe anything what she said, and she was defending that. Now, what does that make her? Does that make her a racist, or does she have the right to defend anyone who may have a position and have the right to stake that position? Uh, panelists, what are your thoughts on this particular issue? Stop with you, brother Anthony. Uh, she's not, uh, ne- she's uh, not necessarily, necessarily a rape for that reason. For that reason. Uh, just defending Morgan's, Morgan's right, right have a different opinion from the other panelists on that program. And uh, he has a right to his own opinion. And uh, I don't think her, her defending him makes her racist. And uh, And, now, uh, now, at a minimum, minimum, Pierce Morgan Morgan is bigoted. bigoted. 
at a, at a, at a, at a minimum, uh, because, uh, you know, because of his, his, uh, his criticism of Meghan Markle. But... Uh, you know, in terms, but racism runs. Uh, there's more to racism than bigotry. Bigotry is a is a part of it, but but another part of it is the ability to impact uh, a person's ability uh, to live to their fullest human potential based on their ethnicity or race. Okay. Brother Haki, we're going to bring you in. Uh, we should be just on her defending Peter Morgan and also speak to her reaction to Sheryl Underwood. Uh, how do you... Um, that particular interaction. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the problem about Africa is that, what's her name? What is her first name? Megan. Megan Markle? Okay, well. Yeah. She, she had a point of view. And here's the thing. Her point of view can't be discredited. Uh, nor should one attempt to discredit her point of view. I mean, you can disagree with her point of view, but when you could rise to the level of saying that you don't believe anything she says, you're essentially saying that she's a liar. So the question becomes, you know, well, you don't know her personally, but you call her a liar. Now, what is that based upon? What is going on in your mind that you qualify her for, qualify for you, qualify you to have the right to call her a liar when you don't know her experiences are in the right in the in the, in the palace? So it raises questions in terms of the role in terms of race. And so when the the young lady, um, what is her name? Um, uh, what is her name? That what's that young lady's name? Cheryl Underwood? No, 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 not Cheryl Underwood. The other lady, uh, the um, Osborne lady. Yeah. So when so when she so when she so when so so when Cheryl Cheryl Underwood asked her the question and she was very very defensive. It seems to me I didn't understand that. Number one, it seems to me as a woman, when she's saying that you know she's going through the situation in terms of her first experiences, her communications with raw personnel, personnel. In particular, when they inferring, inferring about the, the inquiring about the color, potential color of the baby's skin, it seems to me at that point, it seems to me as a woman, she would have been a bit more sympathetic to 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 to, to Michael, simply because you know number one, I mean she is she's pregnant, and so those kind of things really resonate. So it seems to me as a woman, it seems to me I would think that she would say, "Wow, as a woman, that would really stick." But the mere fact she dismissed all that and and and, and to actually a, 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 to embrace uh, this this guy uh, over there in the UK to embrace his nonsense. Then again, the question becomes: So why do you feel necessary to embrace his nonsense? And then you were adamant that he's not racist. Yeah, Haki, she stated that with her her friend. She's come to her friend defense. Well, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's fine. That's that's 
That's, that's, that's fine. That's, Come to your friend's fine. defense. Your friend's defense. But, if your friend, but if your friend is, your friend is doing something that is questionable, that is questionable or at the very least insensitive, to come to his defense because your friend, your friend, then the question becomes, the question becomes okay, so what, okay, so, so what, if he's your so friend, he's then your so what you're saying, the question in terms of what is right, is fundamentally at odds at your friendship with this person. And so therefore, in terms of scale of things, what you're saying is that it doesn't matter what he says, that you're going to send him to the hill. So if you can defend it to the hill, then you have to, at some level, agree that you that you support and you encourage what he says. And that's all the way to get around that argument. And so therefore, that's why I think to some extent that Osborne woman became defensive because she, I don't because she you know she 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 recognized that. And then when she went on to say that the the studio the producers of the program set her up. Thing. Clearly, you know, Clearly, uh, when she started to have some second thoughts in terms of, you know, what she stated on air. Clearly, she, she began to realize that the thing, the position that she took was a questionable one. She has that right to make that, take that position. For the, for the same token, the question that Cheryl asked was that giving, you know, giving you know, his, his, his response to Michael's uh, concerns, do you think at the very least they were insensitive or at the, at the most racist? The mere fact that she wanted to dismiss all of that and simply say he's my friend, so therefore what he says beyond reproach. I don't understand that. That seems to me is that what you're saying is that essentially what you're saying is that Marco, her problem, the situation that she endured in her palace, it has no real relevance. And if that is her position. That her, her position has no relevance. Then what are you saying about Marco the person? What is it about her that qualify her when she says something that it has no relevance? So what is it about her to make make you come to that conclusion? So I think the question in terms of racism is a valid is a valid valid point, and that's indicative of the explosion when when Cheryl Underwood asked the Osborne woman, you know, you know her 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 position, because I think I think I think on I think on on a Level, on a level, she understood, she understood you know, that the implication that the of this guy in the UK, his position was one, you know, uh, not only to be antagonistic, but to indicate his hatred for this woman. And the question becomes, hatred of this woman based upon what? Since he doesn't know her, so what can the hatred be based upon? You don't know her. So it can be based upon her personally. If you say the, the hatred of her is based upon your defense of the royal family, the question is that you're not you're not intimately involved in the affairs of the royal family either. So how how so so then, so then therefore how do you come to defense the royal family when you don't know them intimately? So there's some other justification for why you come in, come into the defense of the royal family. Perhaps it was to underscore your your contempt for for Miss Markle. Or to, or, to or, to or to highlight you know, your disdain for her, not based upon not based what she upon said what she or her experiences, or her in, her experiences palace, in the palace, but more, palace, more based upon who she is as a woman. So clearly, Brother Africa, so I, I had a problem with that, so I, I thought she would build a lot by trying, trying, to, evade by the trying to evade the question. I thought it was interesting, Brother Haki, when it came out in that discussion for one of his, um, one of the panelists who was on the program, radio program, he stated that, um, he has a discontent for her because he re- she refused to have a social relationship with him. And since then, he been on a bandwagon to try to, to spread her and undermine her. I thought that would be an interesting. I think it was that point that was a driving point to force him to um, lead the program. 
I just thought that was very interesting. But what we're going to do right now, we're going to call Brother Moses. He's is back where it's uh, working. Brother Moses, uh, can you hear me? If so, would you like to contribute Yellow. to anything yes. on this stadium? I was on mute. Yes. Um, your thought? Yeah, this this racism thing, I think, um, I think uh, the, the key the thing key is, thing as is, Anthony is, pointed uh, out in the Takis alluded to earlier, is that it's systematic and that, you know, you know, it's embedded it's in institutionalized and that we have to attack it scientifically and not just think that the individual personalities will be able to make the difference and to the mass of the people. And so, you know, we need a, a revolution, we need a, a, a social order that has been sensitized and, and conscious, politically conscious of the racism and the racist institutions and how they work and what they've done to us in the past and how what we need to do in order, in order to stop it in the future for a cultural revolution and, and um, you know um, after the uh, the Floyd was killed um, um, there was a uprising um, that uh, of consciousness, and we need to um, we need to um, get that kind of fervor in terms of the revolutionary movement, and um, and this is the way we will overcome racism ultimately. Thank you, Anthony. Um, when we talk about various forms of racism, that was another form of racism, I would think, because they had the power to make decisions and make things the way they wanted to be, and that is to review a tenureship for Dr. Cornell West at Harvard University, and they turned him down. Now, it was very interesting in terms of they denied him his tenure because he had been tenured at other so-called prestigious European universities in the Ivy League. So what do you make of their refusal to extend tenureship to Dr. Cornell West and there was really no other reason other than, as he expressed, maybe his political views and more particularly maybe political views on the state or on the state or Zionist state of Israel. Your response, uh, Brother Anthony? Yes. Yes. That's probably, That's probably accurate. accurate. Uh, uh, and, uh, and you know, uh, I think, you know, I, I, I think, it, 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 in addition to the fact that he's an African, his political views played a factor in, in him not being granted tenure at Harvard. And uh, a lot of uh, a lot of colleges and university universities, uh, you know, are 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 funded by Zionists. Forces, and therefore their 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 loyal to Zionism, because uh, that's where they get a lot of their funding from to sustain themselves. And so I think his political views might have played a factor in him being denied tenure at Harvard. Uh, and uh, you know, I think you know it's a comp- uh, you know it's a complex situation because there are a lot of universities that are dependent upon uh, Zionism for their funding. But uh, 
this apparently uh his political views apparently struck a nerve. Brother Brother Hockey, your response uh dealing with uh Dr. West and his situation at Harvard University. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, well, uh, you know, um, you know, um, you know, denying to Dr. Cornell West was, uh, I, I, you know, there's, 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 there's no way to adequately define, describe, you know, um, uh, the consternation I feel, you know, when he was denied tenure at Harvard. I mean, he was originally tenured at Yale University. So this guy, I mean, in terms of credentials, in terms of, you know, his literary output, I mean, in terms of the kind of book that he writes, I mean, his intellect, I mean. That's, there's no justification. This is the kind of professor that you would want at any university. The mere fact that they decided not to give him tenure speaks volumes in terms of the kind of antagonism that exists, supposedly, you know, in a, in a university, particularly Ivy League university, where where where, where uh, open uh, debate is uh, is supposedly uh, worshipped and honored. Uh, so clearly, I, I I think this issue around uh, you know his his desire to see, you know, uh, a a um, a, a paradigm shift in terms of the way human beings are treated in society, I think that contributed to him not continuing. But more importantly, I think the notion that when he started equating uh, the struggles of the Palestinians uh, on par uh, with the struggle against uh, anti-Semitism, I think that was a bit much. I, I think for, for those individuals, you know, who designed this element at, uh, at the Harvard University, I think it was a bit much. I think behind the scenes, they probably worked feverishly to make sure that he wasn't given tenure. Uh, and it, and it's, it's, here's the irony: see, if he wouldn't got tenure, he could have been. He could have. He could still could have been there. I mean, he still could have remained there. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Even at the point where he made the decision to leave there, at that point, they was they was they was moving toward give, providing him tenure. But at that point, the damage was already done. And in fact, I mean, I mean, the lack of respect for him, given his academic achievements, uh, had no relevance whatsoever. They simply felt that simply because of the things that he said, uh, but his exercising the you know, openness in terms of academic debate, the mere fact that he did that was an affront to a lot of these people in positions of power there at, Har- at Harvard University. And so, therefore, you know, uh, it speaks volumes in terms of the kind of lack of respect they had for this, for, this giant, for this giant brother in terms of his academic accomplishments. So, clearly, he did the right thing. He left Harvard University. He, he's back in, in New York, you know, um, you know, where he started. You know where he's respected, and uh, you know, and he's, he, you know, he enjoyed the kind of freedom, you know, as a, as an intellectual, you know, to engage in to to engage in real debate around very very critical issues. And then certainly, when we talk about the issue in terms of the Palestinians, you know, any professor who goes for grain of salt, who doesn't defend what's happening, defend what's happening to the Palestinian, I mean, defend against what's happening to the Palestinians, is no professor at all. So 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 Dr. Cornell West is clearly you know, uh, you know, a, a giant among men, and the mere fact that Harvard decided yeah, not to give him tenure, speak dimes in terms of perniciousness, of racism in the society. You know, panelists, when we talk about racism in its various forms, that was an aspect of, and we know it's not really racism, at best it's prejudice, because this particular lady, she really didn't have no power, but she was expressing her desire in terms of her attitude towards a group of African female women who were playing basketball. They were students, high school students, I believe, in, Oklahoma, in the state of Oklahoma. They chose to take a knee 
as as the national anthem was playing, and she um, spoke very loudly to the microphone, called them F N, you know, and um, you know it's it's seemed to be at this point in time that there's no um, regard to people expressing their distaste and dislike for African people at this point in time in the U.S. as well as in many places throughout the world. So what do you make of this announcer, this European lady, um, calling these students F and the N-word because they chose to take a knee while the National Anthem were playing? Anyone can start off. Well, brother, I'll Africa, start off. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. I, I was right. Right. Uh, um, that, let, uh, let, let Brother Moses take start us off, Brother Moses. Yeah, obviously it was outrageous. Um, this 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 um, um, MC or whatever was for the game um, um, did not realize her mic was on, obviously, and uh, and um, and exposed her real feelings. And you know this is the nature of the struggle. Um, um, the good news is we got to see her real feelings. Um, um, the bad news is what her real feelings are. But uh, you know we're faced with this all over this country. Uh, it is again it's, it's an institutionalized and systematic thing that has been compounded over years and years of, of, of oppression and exploitation and. And we can't expect it to go away overnight, but uh, but we do need a, 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 a radical change in the social order, and that's that's what it calls for. Thank you. Okay, going from Brother Moses to Brother Anthony. Your thoughts, Brother Anthony? I don't know whether people understood understood. that may be the reason why those sisters took a knee in the first place was because of attitudes uh, like those expressed by that European woman. And uh, she's not, uh, you know, she's not alone. There are a lot of Europeans that have similar views. And that is why those sisters decided to take a knee uh, at the playing of the national anthem. And also, uh, I would add that people tend not to pay uh, close attention to, to the words of the national anthem, which espouse racism. And uh, and that's been uh, and that's been an official song of the U.S. for decades. So I think the uh, you know the national anthem itself shows how deeply ingrained racism is in this society. Key as we talk about recognizing racism in its various forms, what you make of that particular phenomenon with the high school students? Yeah, but this broadcaster, yeah, but I thought it was a guy. You said it was a woman. You said it was a woman. I think it was a lady, young lady. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was a guy because he said something. Well, the broadcast said something about, the, the, blood about the, the blood sugar being low. <laughs> Whenever the blood sugar low, uh, silly things come uh, comes out. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, but I I think just in keeping with what uh, what Bradford is saying, you know, one of the things is that the reason why the sister, the young sisters took the knee, is in, exactly indicative of the kind of racism that was espoused by this broadcaster. 
So, so again, you know, this is how racism works. Uh, people, you know, people don't want to know the roots of racism. Uh, it's, it's convenient not to know the roots of racism. It's easier to believe that, in fact, that one group of people are superior to another group of people. It's easier to believe that. So you don't have to look at your own um, your own um, um, deficits. You can simply uh, you can simply uh, uh, um, uh, apply those 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 those, those self doubts that you have of yourself. And transfer them on to other individuals. So I think, from a psychological point of view, it's very easy to to you know to pretend or or to 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 to, to not acknowledge the fact that racism exists, or that in fact racism is part of your your persona. Uh, but clearly, Brother Africa, you know, uh, the, I was impressed with the fact that the young sisters took the knee in terms of you know uh, expressing their outrage. It seems to me that any type of um, any type of gesture. Uh, who suggest that there are no problems in America, in particular when you start talking about putting your hand on your heart and taking your head off and all that nonsense, or uh, anything that suggests that there are no problems in America for any person, uh, working class person, or person of color, or poor person for that matter, uh, anybody who subscribes to such such nonsense uh, under the guise that everything is fine in America is someone who obviously doesn't 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 uh, perceive what's going on around him or her. So clearly, I was very impressed with the young people in terms of their, their, their willingness to acknowledge that there's something fundamental wrong in terms of the system. And the mere fact that this broadcast is irate over these young people's uh, position speaks values in terms of the, uh, the kind of uh, uh, explosive racism that's so much part of the American society. Okay, panelists, job well done. We can pause for the calls when we come back. We'd like to have your final thoughts and your final um, thoughts of the need to support the upcoming event, African Women Emancipation Day. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move.
the cultural arm of worker and civil rights organization Black Workers for Justice. Um, we came in from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, from Durham, um, and we're here because we support and we are part of the labor movement, but also part of the environmental justice movement, too. We are with UE150, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, local of the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. In our communities, we fight on the job, but we also see the need to fight in our communities. There is no distance between the two. If we want justice on our jobs, we have to fight for justice in our communities. A lot of our communities face um, environmental hazards. Uh, some of us come from communities that have super fun sites in the middle of them. Some of us are part of organizations, environmental organizations that fight against coal ash ponds, that fight, that are currently fighting against the um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which will come through predominantly of colors, communities of color, black and Native American communities. Um, so we're fighting against that. We're fighting against hog farms, uh, proliferation in North Carolina and the dumping in our streams from being contaminated from hog farms. So we see the intersections between workers being poisoned on the job and workers being poisoned in our communities. We want to close with a song. So we wrote a song, Fruit of Labor wrote a song uh, about water contamination based upon struggles that were going on in North Carolina. So we're going to do a little bit of it right now. Okay. It's called Justice Flowing Down Like Water. Family drank from a deep clear well to the hearts and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice 
flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Little girl don't read so well, there's a lot that she'll never see. Some say it's the mercury and the fish mama heat. Power plants causing you and me. Justice flowing down like
The brother earlier said that he's optimistic that people are more informed in terms of what's going on. I certainly hope he's right. I I would like to believe that people are becoming more informed in terms of what's going on. But in order to assess whether or not people are informed, to a large extent, depends on, you know, uh, people's uh, actions or depends on people's uh, discourse. Uh, So in having these kind of discussions and people, you know, bringing information, presenting information, you know, bringing it to the table, then you get a sense that, you know, that people are growing and people begin to understand what the issues at play are. Uh, anything short of that is very difficult to assess how effective, uh, you know, uh, uh, people are, are learning the, uh, what's going on in society. Uh, one of the things that we struggle to create organization, and, of course, one of the things in terms of creating organization is that, um, you know, there, is, there, are, there are different ways in terms of seeing the world. Some of these perceptions often get in the way in terms of agreeing that the fundamental problem is not so much the, the, identity, the identity aspect of all of this, but more, but the, the, the primary problem is the contradiction is capitalism. And so once people come to the realization that the primary problem is capitalism, then the question in terms of creating, creating a new paradigm becomes automatic. So the struggle continues, and I, I, and I really hope that people are beginning to grasp just how serious the situation is as confronting not just African people, but poor people generally. Uh, clearly, when we talk about immorality of power, we talk about in terms of the willingness or the unwillingness of the wealthy to in, to engage with the issues that are so so pertinent to the society. Speaks volumes of the kind of selfishness uh, that they employ uh, to the extent that their only concern is how much they can get, how much can they gain. No concern whatsoever in terms of the, the suffering of the masses of people, the the, the impediment imposed on the system or the ultimate destruction of the system itself. So clearly, you know, uh, we got a work cut out for us, and as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, I think that is key, because once we unravel the matrix, then we are on our way in terms of doing those kind of things, those kind of institutions, uh, those kind of organizations that we need that are truly empower our people. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Hey, do the same, Brother Hackey. We thank you. Brother Evan, your final thoughts, and your statement of support in honor of the African Women Emancipation Day that's coming up this weekend. Uh, certainly. Uh, certainly. I would urge, I would urge uh, uh, all, uh, Africans all Africans and justice-loving justice people, people who have who time have to time check out, to out, check out our, the out AAPRPGC's the commemoration, commemoration of African Women Emancipation Day. It is very important that our our sisters get organized as well as the masses of our people. And and, uh, in spite of the works of the enemy, the consciousness of the masses of our people is rising. Not decreasing, but rising. But we have to take that to the next level and belong and join a permanent organization that is working for people's liberation. One such organization is the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. And you can learn more about uh, the AAPRPGC by visiting our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. 
There you can learn more about our objectives, Pan-Africanism, and the history of of our party and the Pan-African movement. Thank you for for having me on the program tonight, Brother Africa. And we thank you, Anthony, for your participation. We thank our panelists and analysts for their participation. We are thank Sister Mormy for her participation. And, of course, we must thank the audience for their support and their participation and allowing us to come to their homes this evening where we can speak truth to power and provide them with information so they can use it as a tool for liberation and to help liberate their people and to help liberate humanity from all the various forms of oppression. Again, we endorse the program. We encourage our listenership to check out African Women Emancipation Day on Saturday, March 20th, 2021, from 12 to actually 2.30. Uh, you can register and go on the website. By getting all of this information, by going to www.a-aprp-gc.org. Or the things that they will be discussing at this particular um, webinar are uh, emancipation of women is a precondition for the emancipation of man, and women fighting for socialism, social justice, and revolution. This is going to be a dynamic panel, a dynamic program with dynamic information. If you want to be dynamic, you'll come and join it too. So we hope to see and hear from you on the 20th at this program. And like always, remember, Africa on the Move is a weekly program. You can listen to it every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. If you'd like to have copies of this program or others, please email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. Of course, we appreciate all comments and support. Until next time, we will continue to strive to go forward ever, backwards never. We'll leave you with a message from Brother Kwame Ture, followed by some cultural expressions. This has been Africa on the Move. I'm Brother Africa. Good night. And we understand as revolutionaries that we stand on principles. We must not get confused. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. It's a fact everywhere. Matter of fact, you will read in your very textbooks that they say politics is the art of compromise. Another lie. I'm a revolutionary. I understand that where principles are involved, there is no compromise. Osagifo, Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, says any compromise of principle is an abandonment of principle. When one speaks of principle, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no in-between. It's either one side or the other. When the capitalist press want to attack the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, they tell people all the time, don't you all go listen to them. They're crazy. Especially that one Kwame Ture. He was crazy in the 60s. He's crazier in the 90s. <laughs> well, you know, they call Malcolm crazy, so they're not going to call me sane. <laughs> and I'll never be sane in a system that's insane. That's clear. <laughs> they said, oh, he's just extremist. You know, for him, everything is one side or the other. It's either white or black. Ain't nothing gray. It's either hot or cold. Ain't nothing warm. It's either wet or dry. Ain't nothing damp. They're correct. We're revolutionaries, and we fight for principles, and there is no compromise. You know this well as students. When you recount a story, either you lie or you tell the truth. Where's the middle ground? On a test, either you cheat 
or you do not. There is no gray area. And there ain't no such thing like I did a little cheating on the test. <laughs> Either you believe in God or you do not. But the capitalist system will confuse you. A sister the other day tried to make Middle Brown said, oh, I heard what you said about God, but let me tell you something. It's true that I believe in God, but I have my doubts. I told her, once you start doubting God, you have stopped believing in God. There is no middle ground in principle. If your people are oppressed, and you are not struggling to help alleviate the sufferings of your people, by your very active inactions, you are against your people. The point must be properly comprehended. The point must be properly driven home. Because the capitalist system will let you think that I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. If your people are being raped and you're looking at television enjoying a time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. America prides herself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. <laughs> so my mama. I know what I'm talking about. She belittles Cuba because Cuba's a poor country. Big that. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. Well, in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. <laughs> so they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because, you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. I'm not confused. When they call me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They call me up in New York in the draft board. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy, give them the right to vote. <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, you go ahead. <laughs> I never got confused with them. No. But the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. That's right. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whoop them on half a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out, you always planning. Look here, they've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. But Fidel Castro is a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. Cuba is a poor country, of that there is no question. But do you know in Cuba, every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba is a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education, not a penny. And you look at poor Cuba and see its concern for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism.
Socialism is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they picket Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> well, Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire him up. Shoot him all. <laughs> Don't you will you come? 
Venezuela, una sola bandera, comandante, te amo. Que Dios te bendiga. ¿Dónde está Maranta? El Amaranta y el Pinky, ¿dónde están? ¿No? La cantera.